We are going to jump into our message this morning, the Great Escape series that we've been working on through the book of Exodus. If you've not been been with us in the past, I'm going to give you a little bit of a catch-up just to let you sort of have an idea where we're coming from. Last week in our Exodus uh, 34, as we started into that chapter, we had a message. It was called To Worship Him. And what we saw there was the fact that Moses made a request to God to see his glory, right? And in that instance, right, he had said, he said, you know, God, I want to see this. And what we saw was God did answer that to a certain point, but it was a miraculous vision that he gave him. He allowed him to see something that was pretty amazing, but more importantly, he allowed him to hear his words in that message. And this morning, as we continue in chapter number 34, what we're going to see is the fact that God is going to remind Moses of his expectations of the people, right? What he expects of them. And he's also going to kind of give Moses some information, some things he needs to do, right? And the warnings and preparation for them as they'll be moving forward towards the promised land. And our message this morning that's called Warnings of Sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for God blessing and guiding us. Lord, thank you for this time we will have in your word. And I pray that, Lord, you will, uh, Lord, expose the truth to us. Lord, open the word of God, Lord, like never before and help it, Lord Jesus, to speak to our hearts, Lord. We are a needy people. We are hungry for truth. And Lord, I pray that you will speak to us today, that we will receive exactly what we need, God. I know there's someone out there, Lord Jesus, that needs this message. And I do pray, Father, that you will use it mightily. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. As we're looking there in this message, what we find is Lord, uh, the Lord really reassures Moses, letting him know that, of course, he's going to be traveling them with them to the promised land. And then Moses made his request to see God's glory. But because of God's love for Moses, what we found is he did let him, he did answer it, as I said, but he only did it in a small form. He let him just see a small portion of his back, just a little glimpse, right? What he really wanted, and what Moses didn't understand, was the fact that in reality, God was protecting Moses because Moses could not be, could not experience God's full glory. It would actually kill him. But at the same time, he was teaching Moses something really dramatic and really interesting, which was the fact that he could actually see God's glory in a different way. And that's something that's amazing because that's actually what's available to us. Thankfully, that same opportunity to see God's glory through his words, right, which is what we saw last week, is the fact that you and I have that same opportunity. So God's preserved word, he allows us to see the truth of himself and also get a glimpse of his true glory through what he's preserved for us in his word. And if you have a King James Bible, you have the preserved word of God in your hand. So let's open this word and let's see what God can reveal to us through himself, uh, that we can understand what's going on. Now understand, Moses, as we pick up here, Moses has just had this incredible experience, right? He has just, uh, you know, seen this glimpse of God, the overwhelming thing. He's heard God's voice. He's seen the full glory of God through, through, through understanding who he is, through God proclaiming his names, and now totally overwhelmed and probably with his heart pounding, Moses is going to begin here in Exodus 34, verse 9. And he said, if I now have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, take us for thine inheritance. And what's interesting about this is notice the fact that Moses here, 
even though God has assured him of the fact that he's going to go with him, Moses does not assume anything in this instance. In fact, see, just in Exodus 33, 17, God had said this to Moses directly. He said, And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. Notice this part right here. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. So God had assured him and said, look, you have found grace in my sight. But I want you to notice that Moses goes again, if I have found grace in thy sight. Moses does not assume anything. Moses has an attitude of abject humility as he speaks to the Lord. And see, I'm afraid that if the same scenario were to play out today with the way people are and the way people think today, with our modern day sense of entitlement, right, that it would maybe be a very different experience. I think about young people nowadays, young people that get out of college and get a first job and they think the first house should be better than the house their parents have worked for for 30 years. They believe that in the first week they should be on a first name basis with the CEO of the company and then within just a matter of a two or three years they should be the CEO themselves. There's an amazing sense of entitlement. And with that mindset, we think about this, if we were to go to God and you had that modern day mindset instead of being like humble as Moses, we might believe, hey, you know, God, I'm going to come to you with a list of demands and, you know, we should be communicating face-to-face, kind of like, you know, uh, first-name basis. It's amazing. But what we find is the fact that that aspect of, of entitlement, it carries in our lives. And what it does is it transfers into our relationship with God. It sounds ridiculous, but guess what? People treat God much like they do a police officer, right? They don't necessarily have anything good to say. They, in fact, many times complain about them. But boy, let trouble come. Let them find themselves in a tough spot. And boy, they can't dial 911 fast enough. They need that help right away. And why? Well, I need you now, right? And we think about that and we go, man, you know what? Or maybe the fact that they get confronted with the police themselves because maybe they've done something wrong. And then there's suddenly a, a bit, little bit more respect. We think about that in relation to God. When God calls us to the court, calls us to the mat and he confronts us with our sin, what happens many times is we don't want to admit it. Just like talking to a cop, man. You know what? He said, hey, <laughs> it wasn't me. It was my cousin, right? You know, hey, it was an accident. I, I, I promise. I, it was a, totally an accident. I know, I swear, I know I'm sure I was going the speed limit, right? We want to talk our way out of things. There's no respect there. And what we find is, unfortunately, that lack of respect is transferred into so many people in this current day's relationship with God, but not with Moses. Not with Moses. What we see of Moses, man, he is absolutely incredibly reverent and respectful to God every time he interacts with him. Now, the whole thing is, how about us? Right? Are we flippant sometimes in the way we communicate with God? Or is it matter of we reach out to God only when we need him? Kind of like the cops. I'm in trouble. Come get me. You and I live in a church age. We call it it's a Laodicean church age. What it talks about is the fact that as a Laodicean, you and I struggle with these issues of the flesh. They really, really unfortunately have become have uh, have have messed up our walk with God. They've, they've, they've poisoned us. And I want you, I'm going to read you some scripture in 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 2 through 5, and then verse number 7. I want you to learn, this is describing professing believers, right, during the last times, which is where you and I are. As the church ages go, we are in the last age. And this is a description of believers in the last age. This is you and I. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 3, verses two, uh, verse 2 says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, 
traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. From such, turn away. And listen to verse number seven. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And what I want to do is I want us to look a little bit closer at this list, because we can read through that and be like, you know what, yeah, sounds bad. But I want us to really examine what these different traits are that God describes here. It says, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. That means filled with selfish desires. Their their focus in life is to fulfill themselves. Does that sound like anybody we know in our current culture? Does it sound like us? Covetous, always wanting what someone else has. Drooling over pictures on the internet of all the things they want. Boasters, man. Bragging of their accomplishments. Look what I've accomplished. I'm going to make a video. I'm going to do a YouTube video showing all my stuff, man. And I want people to be envious of what it is I have. Proud. This is being consumed with self and most times completely unaware of it. Pride, unfortunately, blinds us, and pride is a gateway to sin. Blasphemers, right? They're defiling God's name in word, but also in deed because they live in direct opposition to God. Disobedient to parents. Boy, oh boy, have we not seen that in our culture. You ever been in a store and see a parent begging a child to be good instead of being a parent? Disobedient, man. They rebel against authority, not only their parents, but authority as a whole. Unthankful, it says. Boy, filled with a self, with a sense of entitlement. They deserve everything. Unholy. Boy, living in direct opposition to God's will. That describes an awful lot of our culture without natural affection. This is lacking the natural love of God's design. Abortion means if the fact that right now there are there are cultural things that say celebrate your abortion, be proud of your abortion. How can a mother have such an unnatural affection for a child, their baby that lives within them? And they're willing to kill it. Or people that, that, that fall in love with their own sex and all the different things, all the, the, the things that are, that are improper. They're not based upon God's design. God, these things are unnatural without natural affection. Truce breakers, right? A promise means nothing to these people. There are a lot of folks that you and I interact with, and you know what? We just don't feel like we can trust them because there's so many people that have that. Actually. And I'm talking Christians, unfortunately. Truce breakers. False accusers, man, making up unfounded and untrue accusations. They're liars. One of the things I thought about was I just, for whatever reason, it crossed my mind was insurance fraud. And I thought I would look up how much insurance fraud last year in the United States cost. $80 billion. Our culture is filled with liars. Incontinent, like literally means out of control. Out of control. Boy, oh boy, are there not a lot of folks like that. The next one was fierce, a consuming anger and a rage, man. Talk to people about politics and see what happens. My goodness gracious, the reaction is is amazing. Just think about social media, bullying online, things of that nature. This has become such a rampant issue in our culture. Then we look despisers of those that are good. Right in our culture right now, right has become wrong and wrong has become right. It makes no sense. The fact that as a Christian, we're considered by many a hate group. Yet our job is to love the world. It is absolutely astonishing. Traitors, it says. 
These are people that are just unable to trust. They will stab you in the back. Heady, meaning blinded by worldly knowledge. They're so filled with that worldly knowledge, they think they have all the answers. High-minded, boy, they have a sense of superiority over other people. And that's unfortunately a trait a lot of people have. And a lot of times religion will do that to people. People become filled with biblical, scriptural knowledge, and you want to come in here and you want to soak it all up. But guess what? It goes from being this academic, uh, adventurous, scholastic endeavor. It does not apply to your life. We're going to get to them in just a minute. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. My goodness gracious, is that not us feeding one's flesh instead of feeding one's spirit? And that is, man, we live in a microwave society. Everybody wants what they want, and they want it now. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. These are people playing the religious game. They profess to be Christians. They profess to walk and serve and live for the Lord, yet they live for themselves. They have a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And the last one here, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Boy, filled with biblical knowledge. They have all the, the scriptural understanding and the references, and they can go, they know the Bible back and forth, they can quote scripture to you all day long. Their only problem is they're either unable because they're actually lost, or they're unwilling to apply it to their lives. Let this never be said of us that we can never come to the knowledge of the truth. The truth is understanding that God loves us, that God has a purpose for our lives, and this life is not about us. It's about Him and about our life giving Him glory. That's why we're here. Verse 9 continues, and here he goes, uh, and he said, if now I have found grace in thy sight, and this is the part, he said, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, right, talking about the, the, the Israelites, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. Perhaps Moses is feeling encouraged by the closeness of his relationship with God in this moment, and we understand that his devotion to the people shows up yet again, right? Notice the pronouns that Moses uses in this phrase. He says, go among us, pardon our iniquity, our sin, take us for thine inheritance. I know, God, you've set me aside. I know, God, that you see me as special, but you know what? I'm lumping myself in with these folks, this stiff-necked people, I'm also one of them. Moses, as if he's saying this, Lord, you know what? Because we've got this trust between us, could we just, you know, could you just kind of forget that whole golden calf business? I mean, that would, if you could just kind of put that in the past. And you know what? And I know we, you, we just display, they're proclaiming one of the things you talked about yourself was mercy. And, you know, God, do you think you might be able to give us some of that mercy that you might consider us to be your people again, Lord? Would you accept us back? Would you hold us, right? And Moses risks himself yet again in this situation and his relationship with God for the people. And again, they have no idea. Moses is not doing this because he wants to get some kind of popularity contest or show them how much he loves them. He's doing this because he truly does care. They have no idea. Here's God's response, verse number 10. And he said, behold, I make a covenant, right? He says, I give you my word. Before all thy people, I will do marvels, right? Such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, 
for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. That word terrible is an old English word that means an awesome work, an awesome work. So the Lord is reassuring him. He says, look, you know what? He does consider the people to be his, but understand he's going to continue protecting them as well. He's going to protect them against their enemies. He's going to protect them with things which, which you and I would probably describe as acts of God. These are going to be miraculous things. We call these, personally, we call them miracles, right? So notice that the Lord said, All the people among which thou art shall see the work of the Lord. Now, based upon what we studied last week, we looked about Moses, right? And we realized the fact that God covered his eyes. He really didn't see very much, but he heard a lot. So we understand that faith is not founded upon what we see, but first and foremost, based upon what we hear and what we know. Romans 10, 17 says this, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. What we see is the signs and the wonders are actually there to validate the words, right? They're they're not designed for the unbeliever or for the believer. They're designed for the unbeliever. They are designed so that they might help the unbeliever come to faith. They simply through the word and then verification that this is what they're being told is being ordained of God. So we on this subject, as we're on this subject of miracles and we're on the subject of signs and wonders, right? We want to consider the gifts that the disciples were given, and these disciples were given these gifts to validate that what they were saying was coming from the one true God. These would be things like speaking in tongues, miraculous healings through men, and also be being speaking biblical prophecy, right? And when we speak about these, about this subject of signs and wonders, it would be remiss of me if I didn't mention uh, an American-born uh, phenomenon in Christianity that started in 1901, which is still going strong today, where people incorporate a lot of these signs and their wonders into their modern day worship, right? And what we need to understand is the fact that God gives an explanation of what the purpose of these signs and wonders were. He tells us right here in Math and Mark 16, verses 14 through 20. He says, afterward, he appeared unto the eleven. I want you to understand, the apostles here, they have, uh, they're kind of a little bit off track, and he's coming to straighten them out, okay? After he appeared unto the eleven, as they sat at meat, and abraded them, and, and, and abraded them with their unbelief, he's basically rebuking them, and hardness of heart, because they believed not when which, them which had seen him uh, after he was risen. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature, okay? Share the word, Right? And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall be recovered. So what he says, look, they're going to be able to do the, the absolute, they're going to be able to do the impossible. So then, verse number 19, so then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Verse 20, this is important. And they went forth and preached everywhere. So first of all, they're preaching, they're giving the word, the Lord working with them, the Spirit of God working through these men. And notice this, and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. So the word is what reaches the heart, and what happens to validate the word is the sign and the wonder. They're there to validate that these men spoke for God. Understand at this point, they didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have a scripture they could turn to and say, look, hey, you remember the prophecies about Jesus that have been fulfilled? There they are. No, they didn't have that. When they spoke about Jesus, they were saying, hey, you know what? This guy, he is God. And at the same time, guess what? He's also 
the Savior of the world that's been prophesied in the Old Testament, the Messiah that we've been talking about. They don't have a word to point to, so they need something to help validate it. They're going, look, we're not crazy. So these signs would simply say, this is from God. And one of the most famous occurrences that we see of one of these miracles is actually in Acts chapter number 2. Right? We see this in the New Testament. And what happens here is Peter is actually speaking in Jerusalem, and God's going to give him the gift of tongues. Look at that, Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, understand he's speaking to Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. So all of these men are in this group, and as these men are speaking, each man individually is hearing his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Aren't these guys, shouldn't they be speaking like Hebrew? He says, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? He says, how do we hear our own language coming to us? He says, we are Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers of Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and in Pontus and in Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt and all parts of Libya, about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. So they're hearing the truth of God's word directly translating out of their mouth into their own languages in their ears. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? They're like, what's going on here? Right? What I want you to see here is that the gift of tongues is being used as a tool, right? It's being used as a tool with a purpose to reach the lost. Peter continues, and what he's going to do is he's going to tell them, hey, guess what? He is the Christ. He's the one that was fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. And what's happened is you guys didn't recognize it, and you're responsible for killing him. And this is their response as we pick up here in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many, many other words, so again, here's words, did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day were added into the church about 3,000 souls. It was preaching to lost people to draw them to Christ. The signs were used to validate what he was saying was from God. What we see is the miraculous portion of this was to substantiate the words, to substantiate the words, to be taken seriously. That's the reason that the signs were given. That's the reason for, they were, for the purpose for them to be there during this time period. And what happens is Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, he's actually discouraging people from wanting to speak in tongues. And I highly recommend you go read. We don't have time to go through the entire chapter. But understand, he's, he's discouraging them from speaking in tongues because he says, look, you guys are getting caught up in the fun of this. This is, feeds your flesh. This is something you think you're something special because it makes you stand out, right? And he says, you want to do this. They're misusing it. And he's actually encouraging them. He said, look, you, you really want to prophesy. Why does he want to prophesy? Because guess what? The canon wasn't finished. The New Testament was not done. It's not going to be till 90 AD with, with John. So God is still giving revelations at this point. He said, man, you want to hear from God. Don't worry about trying to do this stuff. Try to impress people. Understand the men of God were simply, they were looking to know God more appropriately, more clearly. He's trying to direct them to do it properly, right? Because understand what we learned last week as Peter spoke, right? He talked about being back on the Mount of Transfiguration. And one of the references he made was he couldn't trust his eyes, what he saw, 
He had to trust what he knew in the word. And what he said was, we have a more sure word of prophecy. I can't trust my eyes, but I can always trust the word. We can point to God's completed and preserved word. You and I can have confidence in what we say, thus saith the Lord. It is exactly what God said. He promised he would preserve his word, and he has for generation after generation and a generation. And if you have a King James Bible in your hand, you have that word. And also, he gives specific parameters in that scripture when you read it. You'll notice he tells them very specific things that are regularly violated in these churches all around the world week after week. Paul is, in fact, focuses their attention. What you'll find is he focuses them back in chapter 13. He's trying to get them off of the signs and wonders and trying to focus them on the charity, right? That charity. Charity is the love of God being manifested through humanity. When we reach out and we share the love of God. John, or in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul says this, Charity never faileth, but whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, he says, look, you know what we're receiving? We don't have the full prophecy yet. We receive in part. He says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. We don't have the whole canon. We don't have the scripture. We don't have the Bible yet. It's not all complete. But when that which is perfect has come, when we do have a final, final Bible, a completed canon, then that which is in part, what we're doing now, it shall be done away. He says, look, there'll be no more need of those things to validate the word of God because we'll have the word of God. That's the point of the whole thing. And just as Satan always does, he wants to corrupt God's word. He does it through changing it, or he does it by misrepresenting it, okay? Now, unfortunately, it's not hard for him to find human accomplices in doing this work. In Matthew 24, verses 23 and 24, listen to this. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs, listen to that, false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall receive the, they shall deceive the very elect. They could even trick people right out of their salvation if it was possible. But guess what? It is impossible, thank God. There are men and women in our world today, and guess what? They are doing miraculous things through the power of Christ. The only problem is, it's a different Christ. It's not the Christ that we worship There are men and women doing these things even today. Look at this in 1 John 2, verse 18. Little children, this is talking to those Christians that are not mature yet. It is the last time. He says, look, you know what? You're in the last age. You're in the last age of the church. And he says, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. You and I live in the final age of the church. And guess what? This kind of garbage is rampant. The devil's objective right from the very beginning has always been to stop the Lord from ascending and, and taking his prideful place as the king of king and lord of lords. It's been a battle over the throne over a throne from the very beginning of Genesis all the way to Revelation. It's a battle over the throne, over the, over the throneship of your life, of your heart, right? And what happens here, bottom line is his goal was to corrupt, if he wants to corrupt the word and in the book of Genesis, chapter number three, the very first thing that Moses that that that, that, that Satan says. He doubts, he twists the word of God. Surely hath God said. He attacks the word of God and tries to corrupt God's word. And then when he's not trying to corrupt God's word, guess what he's trying to do? Corrupt God's seed. Trying to corrupt God's seed. He's been after the child that will bruise his heel, but then the Bible says he will crush his 
head. And he knows that day is coming. He's going to try to corrupt mankind to the line that will eventually bring forth the Christ. So he attempted this in the time of Noah, back in Genesis chapter number 6, by trying to corrupt the seed of man by intermingling demonic influence. Again, in Egypt, right? It was not a coincidence that what happened was the Pharaoh ordered all the boys, two years old and younger, to be killed, trying to wipe out that seed. Then we saw it again with Haman. Haman, during the book of Esther, what happens there? He has an edict that's put out to kill all the Jews. Again, Satan using different men over different time periods, trying to wipe out the seed, trying to corrupt the seed in that book of Esther. Then look at the Hebrew boys. When you look at Herod, what did he do? He had Hebrew children at the age of two years old killed. And in our modern age, I mean, think about this. Not even 60-some years ago, Adolf Hitler, for no understandable reason, was one-quarter Jew himself, hunted his own countrymen, Jews, who had done nothing to them, and over six million of them died, being used again as a pawn to try to destroy the seed. And where Israel sits right now, it is surrounded by enemies. And for whatever reason, they're in the news almost every single week, and there's some kind of conflict. Everything is focused upon unbelievable hatred for no reason upon that one place, because guess what? That enemy has his eyes on destroying the seed. Because God knows Satan's plan, guess what he's going to do? He's going to continually warn humanity. Hey, be careful. Be careful not to fall prey to 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 sin, to the corrupting of the seed. Because guess what? If you corrupt that seed, he's trying to stop one thing from happening, which is the birth of that perfect Hebrew child, right? He's trying to stop it way back here in the book of Exodus, trying to keep that Savior from being born. And praise God, he was not successful. With that understanding, let's move into this Exodus 34. I want you to understand, that's where we're coming from. That's the enemy. That's his plan. That's his plot to corrupt mankind, to corrupt humanity. That's what he's trying to do to these Israelites, and he will try to do throughout this time in the wilderness. Verse number 11. Observe, thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, right? And what's interesting, I want you to understand, when, when we... God is speaking to Moses here, but I want you to understand that as he's speaking to Moses, he's basically speaking directly to the people. In effect, that's what he's doing, because Moses is going to repeat everything that God, that God speaks to him about. But I want you to pay attention to the word that's used here. And this very first word is observe, observe. God uses that word because guess what? It doesn't mean just to see, right? We've been talking about just seeing. What observe means is to, to see it. It means to understand what you see, and then it means to apply it or incorporate it into your life. He's saying observe this, right? Not just see it but make it a part of who you are. The Lord is telling them, you know, he is telling them. He thinks what he thinks about these, Israel, these, these Amorites and Hittites and the, the, all the sites, right? He's going to get them out of there. He does not want them in that land. He says, I will drive them out. I'm going to take care of this. He does not want them there. These pagan people, guess what? They are a threat to the Israelites. <laughs> no doubt. Physically, yes, through combat, through war and things like that, but emotionally and spiritually, right? Through seduction and influence, there is a danger there. These people are messed up with some, some, some scary things. They're, 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 their religions are very frightening. God is going to give them some very clear warnings about what they need to watch out for. Look at this in verse number 12. He says, take heed to thyself. Now, I'm going to just pause there on that just for a moment. Take heed to thyself. And that we could, enti- we could preach an entire series on that phrase alone, take heed to thyself. And maybe one day we will, but right now we're going to consider it, right? Take heed to thyself. What it means is examine yourself. 
Examine yourself. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. He's saying, look within your own heart, look within yourself, know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. He says, look, how can you not know yourself? Take the time to look within yourself and compare yourself spiritually. Use the Word of God to show you who you are. Listen to this in James chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. This is someone looking in a mirror, right? Let's say you look in your mirror and you go, man, I, I, I need to shave, man. I look terrible, right? For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. He doesn't shave. He doesn't know anything about it. He just continues right on the way he was. But, look at this, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, the law of liberty is the mirror for the Christian, man. This Bible is the law of liberty. It reflects back to us what a righteous person should look like. And when I look into it, if I don't see that righteous reflection, what I know is I need to make changes. And it says here, but whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his Deed. If you'll let this word speak to your heart, it can change you and it can use you so God can bless your deeds and help what you do on this earth to make an eternal difference. When we examine ourselves, what we're basically doing is we're saying this to ourselves. Are we going to live for God or am I going to live for myself? Which one is it going to be? And that's basically what God's challenging the Israelites with here, right? But he knows their weakness, right? Their weakness is to fall prey to sin. And the, as that verse continues... Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. This is verse 12. Lest thou make a, a, a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. A snare is a trap. It is a trap. He recognizes the fact that, guess what? Satan's going to try to set a trap for them. God is warning. He said, look, you know what? He's warning them in advance. Because I know who you are, basically. Say, so look, you know, the reason I'm telling you this is because I need you to work on you. I need you to work on looking inside yourself because guess what? You have this weakness and the Satan's going to prey upon it. Verse number 13. But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves. Now, why is it important that they do this? Why is it important? What's going on in those places? Well, if you go to the Museum of Natural History in Jerusalem and you go to the exhibits that are downstairs, what you're going to find is there are all of these pagan gods and these idols that have been discovered by archaeologists. And in these pre-Israelite cultures, right, these folks have been in this land for about 400 years and they've been living in direct opposition, these, these, uh, these Canaanites and all these other groups. And what they did was they worshipped their gods, but they did it through human sacrifice and as well as some very distorted and very improper sexual perversion, right? So they fed their flesh, right? They fed their flesh, and a lot of it was sexually motivated. So what we find here is that the lure of sexual sin is going to be what Satan's going to try to use to corrupt the Israelites. And amazingly enough, guess what? That weakness in their society is just the same weakness in our society. We have the exact same issues. So many times we talk about the Israelites are a picture of us. Guess what? There it is. That's exactly the same thing that our culture struggles with even today, and it can destroy us. So what happens is he knows that weakness. So he's saying, look, you know what you need to do? You need to destroy those places. All the places where this stuff's going to be taking place, destroy it. The warning, the same warning signs, right, that we see here physically warning them about destroying physical places. We're going to hear the same warning to you and I spiritually when Paul speaks to us in Ephesians 4.27. He says, neither give place 
to the devil. The devil's, God's telling them, look, don't you give place for this pagan worship to exist. And guess what you and I are not supposed to do? We're not supposed to give place to Satan in our lives. We're not supposed to give him a place that we aren't willing to go there. I'm going to cut these groves down. I'm going to destroy these things. There will be no altars for sin in my life because I'm going to live for God. Verse 14, for thou shalt worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous, look at that, that's capitalized, Jealous, he's naming himself Jealous, is a jealous God, right? For you see, God wants us to love him like he loves us. See, we love God because he first loved us. God is a faithful, loving God, right? And isn't he deserving of that? I mean, think about all, if you're a born-again child of God, my word, if all you got was salvation, man, he more than deserves our love and our faithfulness. So our God is faithful, and all he's doing is asking of us is for us to be faithful in return. That's all. He said, look, can you just be faithful? Can you just stay with me? Because you know what? I'm a jealous God because I deserve to be the only one. We are the bride of Christ, the Bible tells us in the book of, in the New Testament. We see that, and he, guess what? He is our, he's our husband. So we're the bride, and he's our husband. He's a faithful husband. Look at this in verse number 15. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go, listen to this, go a-whoring after their gods. This is sexual reference. And do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice. Boy, this is going to be something, you're just going to be, you're going to get taken up in this. It'll be sexual, it'll be providing food for you, all these things to lure you into it. And verse 16, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons. You're going to allow these women to intermingle with your children and their daughters go whoring after their gods. Oh boy. Now the girls will say, you know what? I'm going to go back and go to worship my gods at the groves and and in the altars. And look at this and make thy sons go whoring after their gods. So they'll influence them through sensuality and through sexual contact and through distortion of thought. And they're going to take them and twist the truth of God. And they're going to take them over there and have them celebrating these pagan things. The worship of pagan and false, false gods. Guess what it does? It feeds the flesh. It feeds the flesh. And when you serve the one true God, guess what you do? You deny your flesh. You deny it. We see this in Luke 9, 23. Jesus said it himself. He says, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, not feed himself, not fulfill himself, deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So the struggle that these Israelites face, guess what? They face it daily. And guess what? You and I do as well. Our flesh wants to be fed. We want to be fulfilled. But God says, look, you must deny yourselves. It comes down to this. Will we be found faithful? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. If that situation or that relationship between us as the bride and our husband, are we found faithful? Or are there other gods, idols in our life, whatever it is, things that have got our attention, things that we love, that we put over the Lord, that you know what we think about, what do I post on Facebook? You know what? Whatever you post or you want people to see, guess what? That's a good indicator where your heart is. If you never post anything about God, it's a good chance that God's not where anywhere where he needs to be in your life. Our lives should be focused upon him. I don't know where that came from, but somebody needed it. There you go. Understand this is 40 years before they're going to get into the promised land. God already knows what's going to happen. He knows that that, that generation is going to wipe out. He knows they're going to be 40 years stuck out there, but God knows this up, up front, but he still gives this warning. Why? Because the warning is not just for them. Guess what? This Bible is for us to hear truth to us, things that speak to us. That truth of avoiding sin and being so careful of these things that are going to take place, it's for us as well. Satan's plan from the beginning 
has been to corrupt God's word. He, we saw it in Genesis. We've seen it all the way through. God's people, right? Which, which, uh, which he successfully has done through so many different, different variations. He's affected God's people through distortion and through lies. He's affected God's word through, through distortion and twisting it. Consider this. There are perversions of the Bible. There are over 450 different English translations alone of the Bible. There is one translation in English for, the, for humanity. That is the King James Bible. It is the one that was established by God, preserved by God. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, there was nothing else on earth. But suddenly man said, you know what? We need one that's a little bit easier to read. And what happens when you do that is you distort the Bible. You're no longer able to see the truth of what is in the Word and words of God. And that's where false teaching comes in, taking perversions of the Bible. And then you mix in false teaching, which is resting the scriptures. The Bible says they rest the word. That means they twist it out of its meaning. That's where false teaching comes from. That's how people end up in all this garbage out there that they get lose sight of what they're in. They're not serving God. They end up serving their flesh, believing they're serving God, which is such a sad, sad thing. And then he simply does it through simply playing, praying upon humanity's weakness to sin. We live in a life and in a world Boy, oh boy, you can go on the internet now and you can find pretty much anything you possibly imagine. It is incredible how much sin is in the world. But remember, we're pictured in these Israelites. They struggle with sin. They're constantly being lured by sin. They're set stumbling blocks in front of them. They trip and they fall again and again and again. And guess what? That's us. We tumble tumble and fall again and again and again. That's why it's so easy for us to relate to them. If you're honest with yourself, you can relate to their struggle. You can because if you're not being honest, guess I'm telling you what, you're, you're fooling yourself. Don't deceive yourself into believing that you're some superhuman. Guess what? We all fall prey to the same lures. The question is, will we fall prey to them? Will we fall into the traps that are set before us? They struggle with being faithful. And guess what? So do we, right? And just because we can relate to them does not mean that we need to be like them, right? We even get to make choices, Just FYI, just so you know, okay, they're going to hear God's warning, and they're still going to get trapped into the same garbage of Satan's snare. They're going to know what they should not do, yet they're going to do it. The Lord has given us His Word, man. He has filled it with alerts and warnings and cautionary tales of destruction and all that unfaithfulness brings. He's shown us the result. We've looked at it in our own world. We've seen it in our own lives. We see what it does. We reap to sow to the flesh and we reap corruption. So many of us are a result of things that we've made choices that we've made in our life and we've seen the pain that it caused and the destruction it brings in our lives. And God's saying again and again and again, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. Pay attention. And when we look at these Israelites, instead of pointing fingers at them of how stupid they are, why don't we look in the mirror and say, what is my problem? Why do I fall prey to the same lures again and again? Because Satan, guess what? His tricks, they have not changed. They've just simply been upgraded in the way they look. The same garbage that worked on them works on us. But just like the Israelites, you and I, guess what? We, in the end, we get to make a choice. It's up to us, right? Will we ignore God's voice as he warns us and as he cries out to us? Or will we have ears to hear, right? We talk about this all the time in here, having ears to hear. And my desire, my heart's desire, that you have ears to hear the truth. Because I'm telling you, Satan wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your family. 
And if you're caught up in something right now, you're on the internet looking at things you should not look at, you're in a relationship with somebody you should not be with, you're doing things, whatever it is, whatever it is, you're, 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 you're taking something that's not yours, whatever sin it is, recognize it for what it is, call it out, take it to God and say, Lord, you know, I'm sorry. God, I want to live for you. I want to do what's right. Because guess what? He's warning us again and again and again. The problem is so many times we don't listen. And then we're filled with regret when we make these choices. And we're like, well, if I'd only known. But we do. The problem is we're not willing to hear it. Listen to Paul's plea on God's behalf in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, and I'm done. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He's saying, I beg you, brethren, talking to Christians, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Live for him, not for you. Be holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. He says, the least we can do. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world. Don't let this world change you. Don't let it make you look like it. You change the world through your life. You make a difference. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. The things of the world, it will not help you. The things of this book will change your world forever and change the lives of people that you love. That ye may prove what is that good and acceptable, listen to this, and perfect will of God. Not my will, Lord. Thine be done. You and I have an opportunity to live for him. And we also have an opportunity to live for ourselves. I can tell you which one is profitable. I can tell you which one is filled with joy. I can tell you which one will change your eternity. I tell you which one can change the lives of people you love and also people you don't even know. Because God can use your life to change this world and change eternity. But the whole thing is, you know what? Will we be found faithful? In the end, God's voice is calling out to us. And as he calls out to us, are we willing to hear the warnings of sin? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for today, God, and for this opportunity you've given us to be in your house. Lord, thank you for the message and, Lord, the warnings that we do see time and time again in Scripture, Lord, of what it is we are to watch for because our enemy, God, he has not changed. He uses the exact same ploys. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be weary of sin. Help us to live righteously. Help us, Lord God, to have a desire to walk with you, Lord, and to live in a way that's pleasing to you, Lord, that you might use our lives. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I... I heard the message. I mean, it's great and all, but you know what? I don't, I don't, God's not really my thing. You know what? I don't know a whole lot about him. Guys, I was raised in a home where we did not have God. I was raised in a home where we didn't talk about God. We didn't go to church. We had nothing to do with him. I was 34 years old the very first time I sat in church. I was 34 years old when I heard the gospel for the first time. And what the gospel is, is bottom line is it tells us, you know what? You and I, we're sinners. The Bible says, for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, everyone has the same problem. And even though we have a problem, the good news is, well, the bad news is there's a penalty for our sin. God's a good judge, and guess what? He holds us accountable. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The first part of that says the wages of sin is death. The wage, what we earn because of our sin, is a physical death and a spiritual death. We're separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. Because guess what? How many times do you have to lie to be a liar? Just one. How many times do you have to sin to be a sinner? Just one. And it takes just one sin to ruin our perfection. Guess what? You and I, we're not perfect. We're born with a nature to do wrong. We've all made mistakes. We've all done things wrong, and God's going to hold us accountable. But the amazing thing is that God, out of his love, the amazing love of Christ, 
It says, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us. And we look back at that verse, it said, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift, a gift. God offers the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life is a gift. A gift costs the giver, but it doesn't cost the receiver. The receiver, it's free. But let me tell you this, God loves us. And who's the gift for? John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world, the world, that whosoever believeth him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The world. If you're on this planet, guess what? God loves you. He died for you. And he's willing to receive you exactly as you are, to forgive you of your sins and to save you for all of eternity. How do we receive that gift? Check it out. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Not might be, not could be. A promise. A promise from the God of the universe. He wrote it all. He created it all. He does not lie. And you know what? He made a promise. that If you would call upon him with your whole heart and you would trust him with your soul, then guess what he would do? He would save you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray right now. Understand, I did this 18 years ago. God changed my eternity. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to the exact same thing. doesn't matter if this is recorded, you're watching it, however you're seeing this. This is not about a ceremony. It's not about a magic prayer. This is the God of the universe speaking to your heart right now because he is. And as he's speaking to your heart, he's waiting for you to respond. And you'll do that in prayer. But again, it's not the words that he's concerned with. It's your heart that he's listening to. So let's bow our heads in prayer. If you're out there and you say, you know what? I want to receive Christ as my Savior. I'm going to lead you in prayer. It won't be the words. It's the heart behind it. Repeat after me in your heart and mind. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner, and I am so sorry for all that I've done wrong. I understand that you love me. I don't see how, but you died for me. And God, I'm asking you right now to pay the price that I cannot pay. Lord, your death on the cross paid the price for my sin. I'm asking you right now, in the best way I know how, to come into my heart. Lord, to forgive me of my sin and to save my soul. Lord, thank you for saving me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.